0: hear me. All right. Should be good now. Good morning again. So last week we had a little bit of a a break from the book of Nehemiah. Well, Mike shared about parenting and we celebrated Mother's Day and we had a, a dedication for our daughter Eden, which was really cool. Now, this morning, we're getting back into our study of the book of Nehemiah. And so far, we've covered the first two chapters of Nehemiah. So today, we'll be picking up in chapter three of Nehemiah. But first, I'm just going to do a quick little recap over what we've gone through so far. So we, chapter one is kind of who, who is Nehemiah? What's his mission? What's he all about? Uh, Nehemiah, son of Hakaliah, is introduced in chapter one. Right off the bat, he's a Jew, uh, but we learn that he's the cupbearer for the king of Persia, which is the empire that's in control of the vast region that includes Israel. And the Jews who were in exile in Persia were allowed to return to Jerusalem, their hometown, after many, many years. But they faced this massive task of of rebuilding the city and their temple, and many of them had never even been to the city before. So the temple has already been rebuilt. That was covered in Ezra. By the time we get to Nehemiah, the city itself was in bad shape. It was burned. It was ruined and destroyed. Nehemiah hears the report of this. And although he has this really great position, really, we talked about how good of a position the cupbearer would have been uh, in in the Persian administration. He's got that great Persian position, but his heart is with his people and he mourns for Jerusalem. He's likely never been there, but he he still has this connection to his roots. And so he he fasts and and prays to God, not just that God would fix the situation. His prayer isn't, oh, I heard how bad things are in Jerusalem. God, you've got to go fix that, please. No, he prays that God would grant him favor in front of the king so that Nehemiah himself could go and help and become part of the solution himself. That was chapter one. We read his prayer and everything. In chapter two... He he got the king's blessing and he successfully made the journey to Jerusalem. He, he was given an opportunity to explain his situation to the king and to ask permission uh, to journey to Jerusalem. Now that whole conversation was risky to have with the king, so he was terrified of what might come of that conversation. But he trusted God to handle it. He he prays even in the heat of the moment. Remember, we, we I called it his popcorn prayer. <laughs> Uh, We don't know what he prayed, it just says that he prayed, and we know that the the fact that he prayed in that moment meant that he was acknowledging God's presence and God's power, even in the midst of that extremely stressful situation. We also talked about in chapter 2 how Nehemiah acted wisely and with discretion. You know, he didn't act foolishly, he didn't act rashly. Because of just because God is gracious, Uh, so it's it's a really important distinction. By the grace of God, he acted wisely. He didn't act foolishly just because God is gracious. And we saw him to continue to model that even after he got to Jerusalem. By the grace of God, uh, after his wish was granted by the king, by the grace of God, once he got there, he assessed the situation in the city. He made a plan and he presented it to the people. And we had three simple application points from Nehemiah chapter 2. I'll put them up again because they're just super simple and they're worth reiterating. So the three points that we got from Nehemiah chapter 2 were trust in God's sovereignty, but don't be foolish, and pray a lot. Three really simple, easy application points that we got from from chapter 2. And at the end of chapter 2, the people are ready to build and rebuild. The walls and the gates of the city. And we get a sneak peek, and we're introduced to a couple of the villains that are going to come up later on, the opposition that they will face later on. But before advancing the narrative, and before introducing that next major conflict, we get a little breakaway from the story. And chapter three is a little bit more of just a list of facts. And another odd thing about chapter three that makes it kind of stand out a little bit is that it shifts. For so far, we've been in first person narrative mode. Nehemiah's telling the story in the first person, and chapter three shifts to a third person point of view, and it's a description of the work that was being done on the walls and on the buildings. But the first person narrative picks it up back again in, in chapter four. So if you imagine Nehemiah kind of compiling this book, almost like a memoir of his experiences. you can kind of picture him taking this as an official report and inserting it into this as like a piece of material that's relevant to the story. Here's a report of the construction that that went on, just kind of inserting it there into the story. So chapter three might be one that we tend to skim over quickly. It's very repetitive, but it's not included just to make Nehemiah's readers bored as they're reading through the story. To the contrary, at least to me, it's It seems to me that Nehemiah is giving us almost an illustration, like like a chart or a graphic that we might insert into a story, or like your study Bibles often will have charts and graphics to explain things. But it's only using words, obviously. But seeing it as, as an illustration only works if you have the right frame of reference for the words to actually provoke the right images in your imagination. If you were living in Jerusalem, even today, some of these places would be familiar. Um, so a lot of them might go by other names now as well. But even even today, a lot of these these places—oh, I know where that is. And a couple thousand years ago, imagine reading this and and recognizing, you know, your neighbor's family name and and the name of the gate that you use every day going to and from the western hilltop around here. You know, it would be like reading about. The Sayers and the Zayers and the Widricks and the main gate at Fort Drum and the Stuarts in Carthage and the the Mall in Watertown. You know all these just really familiar places, familiar names. It, it is. It's just a record of what they did and and where they did it. So it's not meant to be super exciting. This isn't riveting narrative, um, but to the original readers, it would have been. Familiar, And they would have been able to imagine all of these these places and and the people and the rebuilding that was taking place. So we don't have the advantage of that familiarity in this passage. So in a little bit, I have a couple of visuals that I thought uh, might help with that. But first, I just want to start by reading verse 1 of Nehemiah 3. It says, The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the Sheep Gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of Hananel, they dedicated it. So, first of all, here's what the sheep gate looks like. Even today, it's just kind of cool to be able to see that, isn't it? That's what it looks like. Wouldn't have looked much different even back then. But I also wanted to point out here in verse 1 Eliashib's involvement. So, who is Eliashib? He's the high priest. And the fact that he and his fellow priests are mentioned here first, along with their dedications of the gate and the walls nearest the temple, by the way, which we'll see in a minute, the priests dedicated their work. What does that mean, that they dedicated the gate, they dedicated the walls, and the towers? So last week, again, I mentioned we dedicated our daughter Eden, which was an acknowledgment of our commitment and our, our dedication as parents to raise her in such a way that she, she knows the truth of Scripture and the, the message of the gospel and to know who God is and to pray that she will choose to love and follow God when she gets older and she's able to make those decisions for herself. And dedicating a child to God is an acknowledgment of our dependency on Him when it comes to raising a child. God has chosen us, Ellie and I, as her parents to raise her, but we are just stewards, and we're temporary stewards at that. So the responsibility of our role in her life is, of course, huge, but ultimately it's God who is her true father. He created her and sustains her, and it's ultimately his hands into which we trust our daughter's life. Because as much as we will do everything in our power to love her and protect her and teach her, there's a whole lot more that's out of our power than is within our power. And I bring all this up not just as an excuse to talk about Eden, which is the first time I've I've done that since she was born in a sermon, by the way. (laughs) But it's, it's just easy to read that, you know, they dedicated the gate. Great. You know, just not really think about what that means. And obviously, dedicating a baby is, is different in some ways than dedicating an inanimate pile of stones. Uh, but the underlying principle is still the same. The priest's dedication of the work implies their motivations for building and, and their dependence on God for the completion of their work. So I think this note is a positive note that we're setting up for the the building, and we'll see that carry on throughout the story. Remember, Nehemiah trusted in God's sovereignty while also recognizing himself as being an active participant in God's sovereign plan. And this is a major theme, not just in Nehemiah, but but the whole Bible. So you'll probably hear me say it a few more times. And in this case, we're just seeing another really good illustration of that, how they're doing the work with their hands, but they recognize that it's because of God's gracious hand on them that they're successful. And we're going to keep reading in a moment, and at first, I'll tell you, I was just planning on reading a couple of the verses from from chapter three, a couple paragraphs, because again, it is very repetitive, but eventually, I'll warn you now, I decided I'm going to read through the whole thing with you this morning, and I have a reason for that, and I'll explain after I read it. But first. I want to show you an illustration of the whole city as it would have been at the time of Nehemiah. It's a pretty cool illustration. Hopefully you can, I don't know if you can read all of the the text, Um, hopefully you can kind of see the numbers a little bit. You can see the city kind of sprawls in a long oval shape, so from the northeast to the southwest, and at the northeast end you have Mount Moriah, which is where God provided a sacrificial ram for Abraham in place of Isaac. And the temple is up on that hill at the highest point in the city. At the northeast end is where the temple is. And then on either side of the city, you have the valleys. And to the west, on the other side of the western valley is the western hilltop, which now is what people refer to as Mount Zion. It wasn't referred to that back then, but now that's what people call Mount Zion. So this will give you something to kind of zone out, uh, look at as you zone out while I read uh, but if you do try to follow along with the text it might help to know that chapter 3 as it goes through these different locations it's actually very systematic and it goes in a counterclockwise direction kind of a looping around starting at the northeast of the city so number 4 if you can see it's right at the northeast towards the top middle uh of the of the city that's the sheep gate that we were just looking at that's where the sheep gate is and that was mentioned first where the priests dedicate the sheep gate and then number three and number two are the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of the Hananel, that were also in, in verse one, or verse two, maybe. Uh, and then the next place that's going to be mentioned in verse three is the Fish Gate, which is number 22. And then the Old Gate, which is number 21, and so on. it, it continues moving around those orange dots, kind of in a clockwise uh, motion around the city. All right, so I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to read chapter three, and I will warn you as well that there are a lot of names here. <laughs> And I know normally that's a, that's kind of a reason to avoid reading the whole passage out loud. And I promise I'm going to fumble over some, and my pronunciation might not be anything close to the right the English or Hebrew pronunciation of these names. But I'm I'm going to read through them nonetheless. And I do have a reason, whether it's a good one or not, we'll see. Okay, Nehemiah, I'll just start back from. Verse 1, Nehemiah chapter 3. The high priest Eliashib and his fellow priests began rebuilding the sheep gate. They dedicated it and installed its doors. After building the wall to the Tower of the Hundred and the Tower of the Hananel, they dedicated it. The men of Jericho built next to Eliashib, and next to them, Zakor son of Imri built. The sons of Hasanah built the fish gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, Merimah, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz made repairs. Beside them, Meshulam, son of Barakiah, son of Meshezabel, made repairs. Next to them, Zadok, son of Bana, made repairs. Beside them, the Tekoites made repairs, but their nobles did not lift a finger to help their supervisors. Joaida, son of Paseah, and Meshulam, son of Basodia, repaired the old gate. They built it with beams and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Next to them, the repairs were done by Melatia, the Gibeonite, Jadon, the Maranathite, and the men of Gibeon and Mizpah, who were under the authority of the governor of the region west of the Euphrates River. After him, Uziel, son of Harahiah, the goldsmith, made repairs, and next to him, Hananiah, son of the perfumer, made repairs. They restored Jerusalem as far as the broad wall. Next to them, Raphaiah, son of Hur, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. After them, Jediah, son of Harumaf, looks like Harumph, <laughs> made repairs across from his house. Next to him, Hatush the son of Hashabaniah, made repairs. Melchijah, son of Harim and Hasub, son of Pahath Moab, made repairs to another section, as well as to the Tower of the Ovens. Beside him, Shalom, son of Halohesh, ruler of half the district of Jerusalem, made repairs. He and his daughters. Hanun and the inhabitants of Zanoah repaired the valley gate. They rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. There were a lot of doors, bolts, and bars. <laughs> and repaired 500 yards of the wall to the dung gate, which is where they put the dung. Malkijah, son of Rahab's ruler of the district of Beth HaKarim, repaired the dung gate. He rebuilt it and installed its doors, bolts, and bars. Shalun, son of Kolhosas, ruler of the district of Mizpah, repaired the fountain gate. He rebuilt it and roofed it. Then he installed its doors, bolts, and bars. He also made repairs to the wall of the pool of Shelah near the king's garden, as far as the stairs that descend from the city of David. After him, Nehemiah, son of Azbuk, ruler of half the district of Beth made repairs up to a point opposite the tombs of David, as far as the artificial pool in the house of the warriors. Next to him, the Levites made repairs under Rehum, son of Bani. Beside him, Hashabiah, ruler of half the district of Kelah, made repairs for his district. After him, their fellow Levites made repairs under Benui, son of Henadad, ruler of half the district of Kelah. Next to him, Ezer, son of Jeshua, ruler of Mizpah, made repairs to another section opposite the ascent to the armory at the angle. After him, Baruch, son of Zabai, diligently repaired another section from the angle to the door of the house of the high priest Eliashib. Beside him, Merimoth, son of Uriah, son of Hakoz, made repairs to another section from the door of Eliashib's house to the end of his house. And next to him, the priests from the surrounding area made repairs. After them, Benjamin and Hashub made repairs opposite their house. Beside them, Azariah, son of Masaiah, son of Ananiah, made repairs beside his house. After him, Benui, son of Henadad, made repairs to another section, from the house of Azariah to the angle and the corner. Halal, son of Uzai, made repairs opposite the angle and the tower that juts out from the king's upper palace by the courtyard of the guard. Beside him, Padaiah... Son of Parosh and the temple servants living on Ophel made repairs opposite the water gate toward the east and the tower that juts out. Next to him, the Tekoites made repairs to another section from a point opposite the great tower that juts out as far as the wall of Ophel. Each of the priests made repairs above the horse gate, each opposite his own house. After them, Zadok, son of Emer, made repairs opposite his house. And beside him, Shemaiah, son of Shekaniah, guard of the east gate, made repairs. Next to him, Hananiah, son of Shelemiah, and Hanun, the sixth son of Zalath, made repairs to another section. After them, Meshulam, son of Berakiah, made repairs out opposite his room. Next to him, Melchizedek, one of the goldsmiths, made repairs to the house of the temple servants and the merchants opposite the inspection gate and as far as the upstairs room on the corner the goldsmiths and merchants made repairs between the upstairs room on the corner and the sheep gate full circle literally ends with the, starts with the sheep gate and ends with the sheep gate it's very systematic was was that exciting <laughs> no <laughs> yes <laughs> so i don't blame you if you have you know a hard time kind of focusing on or at least following that and I know it's not super compelling narrative, and it's it's not really supposed to be compelling narrative in this section, but it is here for a reason. And not just one reason, I'm sure, but I do think it's exciting for at least one reason that that jumped out to me. It's exciting not in spite of all the names in this passage, but because of all the names in this passage. And no, that doesn't mean I'm gonna go through and, and pick apart like the Hebrew meaning of each of these names, um, which would be a lot of fun. And, the, and you can have a lot of fun kind of looking at you know, the, the different families that they came from, the different walks of life, and, and the archaeology of these different places and the history behind it. But I wanted to, make, to, to read through all the names just simply to make the point that there are a lot of names, and they come from a lot of different walks of life. I know I could have just said that. I could have just said there's a lot of names here, guys. But that wouldn't be nearly as memorable or as traumatizing as me just reading through the whole thing, right? And by the way, so in the midst of all those names, whose name is missing? Nehemiah. Yeah, so actually the name Nehemiah is in there in verse 16, but it's a different Nehemiah. It's a son of, uh, it's a different Nehemiah. So, yeah, his name is in there, but the namesake, the main character, the hero of this book, is not mentioned in this whole record of the Reconstruction Project. I just think that's so cool. Because it points us to a really significant application for this book. And I gave you three application points for chapter three. I'm only going to give you one for chapter... uh, Sorry, for chapter two, there were three. For chapter three, I'm going to give you one. Got it? Uh, So, chapter... Three of Nehemiah underscores a super important theme of both Ezra and Nehemiah. And it's that the people of God as a whole, not just your know, great leaders like Nehemiah, are vital for accomplishing God's redemptive purposes. All of God's people worked together to rebuild the wall. The, the, the clergy, so to speak, the, the priests and the laity, the craftsmen and the tradesmen, the, by town and by family, each contributing to the completion of the whole. And his daughters. That, I, that was cool, too. I meant to, to point that out, too, because that stood out just as I was reading it here. And his daughters. So it pointed out that the, the daughters were involved in the work. So cool. And in chapters 1 and 2, you know, we saw Nehemiah recognizing himself, first trusting in God's sovereignty and recognizing himself as a participant in God's plan. But Nehemiah didn't go to Jerusalem expecting to just rebuild the walls single-handedly, did he? Of course not. That would be ridiculous. He went and encouraged and equipped and organized a whole multitude of people, and it was the many hands belonging to those many names that I made you suffer through. It was those many hands working together that got that work done. And that's not to say that Nehemiah didn't get his own hands dirty. Well, he didn't just stand back and and watch everyone else do the hard stuff. He, He counts himself among the workers in the next few chapters. So we'll see that. But that's the point. He was just one of many, and his name didn't even make it in this list of the construction projects. Nehemiah did not rebuild the walls of Jerusalem. The people of Israel rebuilt the walls of Jerusalem. And the people were united under Nehemiah's leadership, of course. And and ultimately, the credit for all of that goes to God, who enabled them to succeed. And we'll see more of that, too, in in the next chapters. Their reliance on God will be tested. But this chapter is... A reminder of how God uses leaders not to be placed on a pedestal and to get all the credit, but to equip and to encourage all of God's people to do His work. Plus, seeing how God used His people to rebuild the physical walls of Jerusalem is also a foreshadowing of how God would ultimately bring His eternal kingdom that can never be conquered. Or destroyed, and that's what was prophesied in in Isaiah. Daniel prophesied during the exile. Daniel chapter 2 verse 44 says, in the days of those kings, the God of the heavens will set up a kingdom that will never be destroyed, and this kingdom will not be left to another people. It will crush all these kingdoms and bring them to an end, but will itself endure forever. The Jews building in the time of Nehemiah may have envisioned themselves as being the builders of this eternal kingdom at at that time. Later, we find out that really that was the good news that Jesus came preaching 400 years later, and it was a different kind of kingdom than anyone was was imagining. But he said that the kingdom of heaven is coming to earth, and Jesus said, I'm the one on the throne in that kingdom. And I'm not going (laughs) to... We can't turn this into a whole study of the kingdom of God. Uh, we'll have plenty of time for that in uh, the book of Matthew. Uh, but as it relates to Nehemiah, the, the same principle of the whole body cooperation you know, applies to the church today. The church being the people who are the church, not a building, but the people of the church are the foundation of God's kingdom. Ephesians. 2, 17 through 22, talks about this. It says, He came and proclaimed the good news of peace to you who are far away and peace to those who are near. For through Him we both have access in one spirit to the Father. So then you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizens with the saints and members of God's household, built on the foundation of the apostles and prophets With Christ Jesus himself as the cornerstone. In him, the whole building being put together grows into a holy temple in the Lord. In him, you are also being built together for God's dwelling in the Spirit. So, this is Paul speaking to the church and using the metaphors of building to describe the spiritual work of God building his kingdom. And ultimately, God is the builder but we're not passive observers of his building. We're active participants. And again, you know, I'm only scratching the surface of we're we're getting into the kingdom of God and the doctrine of the church. And uh, it's just to show how Nehemiah chapter three, while giving a very in the moment record of what happened, is also still pointing forward to Jesus and the church. And And this point really is as true for us As it was for them, this point that the people of God as a whole, not just leaders, are vital for accomplishing God's redemptive purpose. So I challenge you to ask yourself, and this is going to be a a a little bit of a shorter message today. I figured it's it's a beautiful day, and I was going to make you sit through all that whole chapter, so we're we're almost done. But I want to challenge you to ask yourself when, where, and how. Is God inviting me to join his redemptive work in the world? And actually, I'm going to rephrase that. Don't ask yourself. Ask God, where and how are you inviting me to join your redemptive work in the world? Because he is. And if you're truly willing, you will see that you are, enjoy, uh, you are invited to join him uh, at, at home, at work, in your communities, and in your church. And if you're struggling to figure out what that looks like in your life, remember the whole point is that you're not alone, so don't try to figure out your role in isolation because that, that's the opposite of the point. You know, we're a family. We need to help each other to work together. And Nehemiah is certainly not offering a cop-out for leadership any less than it's emphasizing the importance of teamwork. You know, it it, it illustrates the necessity of having both. And, you know, although we certainly will fail at times, Mike and I, as leaders in this family, you know, we have the goal and desire to encourage and equip each other and, and you all as our fellow brothers and sisters to be a fully functioning body. But, you know, we're... We're not puppeteers, <laughs> thank goodness. Uh, we're fellow workers with you. And we want you to be willing and active alongside us. And let me just say, you know, spiritual leadership in this sense does not just come in the form of pastors uh, or in other official you know, positions. We're all called to be discipled by those who are you know, further along in their journey than us, to be pulled up by them while also discipling those who are less far along. And, and so we're all building each other up. Continuously, because the people of God as a whole, not just leaders, are vital for accomplishing God's redemptive purposes. Father, I thank you today for the provision of your word and scripture and what it teaches us about you and about how you work in the world through your people. Thank you for the story of Nehemiah and the example that it can be even thousands of years later. Lord, I thank you for the blessing of your kingdom that is given to us through Christ. Lord, I pray that we would be willing and worthy and loyal subjects in your kingdom, that we would be hard workers alongside each other, that we would be seeking out those places in our lives where you are calling us to to work uh, in whatever form that may be, that we would be willing to sacrifice our own time and energy and, and comfort in the service of your kingdom. In Jesus' name I pray. Amen. Now, before we do, before I dismiss you, um, we are going to have prayer time for the Newtkins, as it is your last week with us. It's always so bittersweet. Um, Very sad that you're leaving, but it's exciting to see what God has for your future. Um, so we're going to have you guys come up here if you don't mind, and we're going to have some time. Normally, you know, we would have more people come up and, you know, pray and lay hands, but we're going to ask you to stay seated because of COVID. I was going to say, if you'd like to, and I can grab the I'm sure, yeah, if if neither of you want to say anything, Felicity will, but, and maybe share a little bit about what, you know, where you're going next,
1: and,
0: um, oh yeah, come step over this way, if you don't mind, yeah, it is on, should be good.
1: Well, uh, kind of impromptu, so, um, but (laughs) it's been an incredible pleasure, (laughs) An honor to be part of this church for the last uh, few years. I wish we had more time, and with so many friends and so many so many experiences and so much support, I mean it's it's going to be hard to replicate. Uh, but the we'll be moving on to Fort Sam Houston, Texas, and San Antonio. I'll be going to grad school. And my my beautiful ladies will be come with me again, as they just uh, as they do so well and um, are so loving and supportive. So. I guess uh, as Hannah said earlier, it's um until next time or um see you
0: and, later. and see
1: you later yep. and it's and i can't uh I can't thank you enough there's it's been deployments and exercises and training and the entire time you've all been there, and uh i can't it's it's hard to put words to that so and I'm gonna give my wife a quick opportunity if she wants to say anything no, besides
0: I'll yeah. I'll talk to you all in the yeah. <laughs> <laughs> <laughs>
1: so again, God bless and thank you for everything.
0: Thank you. Uh go ahead and stay here for a second. Um, I'm just gonna pray for you. Mind if I put my hand on you. <sighs> Heavenly Father, we uh this is this is always a, a difficult time uh to to say thank you for taking people away uh but we do praise you and thank you for uh the way you work in all of our lives and, and here in this place um we we see a lot of of this and it's it's never something that's easy easier um but we do see how you we, you do bless um people through Transitions and moving, and how you do work in people's lives. So, we are excited to see what you do in the Newtkins' lives next. Lord, I pray that we have been a blessing to them. I thank you that they do uh, feel that it's been a blessing to spend time with this family while they've been here. Lord, I just pray that you would, uh, that your spirit would move with them, that you would be with them through all of the logistics of moving, uh, that the family would grow closer together through everything, uh, and that you would continue to bless them in their endeavors to glorify you and to be a family um, that is honoring to you. And I just pray that you would show them how you plan to use them uh, in their next station and just get them connected quickly to another group of believers who will Sharpen them and disciple them, and who they can disciple and sharpen themselves, and and get connected, and uh, be be workers there. Um, so I just pray for your your blessing and your hand over all of that, and for the the emotions that go along with that as well. Uh, that you would be a comfort and and a, a steady hand in their lives. In Jesus' name, I pray. Amen. Thank you, guys. Sorry for the no warning, but <laughs> we. think that's that's all we have was there something else I was supposed to bring up okay that's everything thank you guys have a great